Our family is curious. We've traveled far and wide in search of who, what, when, where, and why, and what we've learned, we write about. We are writers. Hi, I'm your host, Sarah Marinus Vandershaft, and I'm a writer and the daughter of Pulitzer Prize winner David Marinus. Welcome to our podcast, Ink in Our Blood, where my father and I explore with you our family's culture, legacy, and experiences as writers. In our second season, we'll talk about the mythology of sports and whether sports matter, about Broadway shows, the search for truth and reliable information, and uncovering not only my grandfather's FBI file, but the story of how he met my grandmother. And we'll have some special guests. Buckle up, podcast listeners. This is a wild ride. Dad and I talk with Jane Levy, author of groundbreaking books on Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle, and Sandy Koufax. As one of the first women reporters to enter the male-dominated locker rooms, she's got a deep background in all aspects of sports, the slang, and yes, a four-letter word vocabulary. She can also toss out the names of managers, athletes, sports writers, and no hitters faster than a throw from right field to third base. Keep up if you can. As someone who once smuggled her own hummus wrap into a Milwaukee Brewers game, I admit I was often two steps behind, but very happy to be entertained. Jane, can I ask you a little bit about um, uh, being a woman um, reporter covering sports, um, especially when you started uh how did you get into that in, you know, when you were younger in high school or college and, um, and what were some of the things people told you about that? Uh, well, I wasn't the first though. I'm often credited with being the first, uh, to enter a locker room. Uh, there were many women, well, maybe not many, but there were women who came before me, notably, um, a lot of the women who covered hockey, Hockey being so desperate for coverage back in the day, they'd let anybody in. So um, Robin Herman for the Times and Lori Mifflin, uh, Joan Ryan was at the Post. Um, so there were women. And if you go back historically, there was somebody named Mary Garver who was allowed to cover sports during World War II and on and on and on. But I was pretty early. Um, I didn't come to it um, with any knowledge of what to expect at all. Um, women were not allowed in the locker room when I first got there. Um, and so I was kind of oblivious. It was my dad who was, uh, the water boy for the New York football giants who, um, instigated my interest in all things, um, uh, involving balls. So that's probably not something I wanted to say that way. Um, <laughs> when was he the water boy? 1927. And wow. he, and he was a water boy. That he got that job at age 10 um, because his father, uh, A.B., uh, was a rummy, uh, he was a bookie and a rum runner. <laughs> of course. He delivered, he delivered all the um, uh, booze to the polo grounds. And my dad lived above the, you know, uh, you know sort of a Coogan's, hung out on Coogan's Bluff as a kid. That's that outcropping of Manhattan yep. schist that hovered over. Uh, you know, the then polo grounds. So my mother hated everything about sports and banished it from her parlor. And so on Sundays, we would go out and listen, my dad and I drive around Long Island 
and listen to um, Al DeRogatis calling the Giants yep. <laughs> and argue about who is better, Charlie Connerly or um, uh, Y.A. Tittle. I really preferred Tittle. Um, you know, and I think didn't Del Schaffner just die recently? I, I, I think that Schaffner was on that team. Team yep. Andy Robustelli was on that team. Uh, there's a guy named Lombardi who was around for a while. There too. <laughs> the um, two greatest assistant coaches in history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ali, Ali, Ali Sherman was the coach then, I think. Right. Well, um, and, and Jim Jim Lee Howell. Yeah. yeah my dad um, hated the Yankees for obvious reasons. And um, nonetheless, uh, was willing to take me to games at Yankee Stadium, which was, and I was just looking at uh, looking this up, which was um, literally two city blocks from my grandmother's parlor at um, um, 751 Walton Avenue in a building called the Yankee Arms, or what I believe was called the Yankee Arms. And it had a stained glass window in the... Um, large uh, entry hall, um, crossed bats over a heraldic shield. And I always swore I was going to go back there and bribe somebody, uh, bring somebody who spoke Spanish and bribe somebody to get that stained glass window. And when I went back two years ago um, uh, for to throw our first pitch at Yankee Stadium for the Babe Book, it was gone. They had, they had opened up the ba- back entrance and you could see right through to Girard Avenue, which was one block closer to the old Yankee Stadium. So um, my grandmother's proximity to the Yankees and my father's, um, you know, love for all things athletic. And that is to say he was a short, fat Jew with great eye-hand coordination. Um, so... Uh, that's what did it. That's what got me into it. And then I went to Columbia Graduate School of Journalism, um, where they make you write um, a master's essay, which is, in essence, a, a long magazine article. And I wanted to write about Red Smith. And this was 77 when everybody else wanted to be Woodward and Bernstein. So I had a hard time getting a, a, a sponsor, a faculty sponsor. The only person who would sponsor me was the dean of the school, Ellie Abel. Uh, who you probably remember was a great correspondent for uh, NBC for a long time, and he loved Red. So I spent um, I don't know eight months trailing Red around um, wherever he went and nudging him about why he put commas where he did, uh, just like the English major I was at, at Barnard. And um, my first time in a locker room, and I didn't check these ground rules, do I? Do I have to like clean up my language, or do I quote people the way they actually spoke? You can quote people the way they actually okay. spoke. So I go to to uh, Free River Stadium in Pittsburgh to watch one of those amazing games, um, Oakland uh, Raiders, now the Nevada Las Vegas Raiders um, against the Pittsburgh Steelers. And um, this Red- is the Immaculate Conception. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Go on. I'm sorry. So, um, <laughs> So uh, I think it's the Immaculate Reception. reception. I'm sorry. Um, So Red had gotten me credentials that said Red Smith, New York Times. Mm -hmm. And um, that did not qualify me for a seat in the heated press box. So I was outside freezing and not had not come dressed appropriately for that um, 
eventuality. So at halftime, this incredibly gallant man, the lead sports columnist, not just for the Times, but in the whole country, says to me, you know, I think I can write the second half off television. (laughs) We go in the bar and he watches the game on television. I'm sitting at his elbow saying, why did you put an apostrophe here, you know? And he's croaking his answers, called his voice the croak of an old crock. And um, I'm I'm bringing him, you know, vodka, hold the fruit. Um, And when the game ends, uh, Steelers won. Um, He goes, follows all the other guys down to the bowels of the stadium to go interview the victorious Pittsburgh Steelers. And I followed, I, you know, and I find myself standing outside the um, Oakland dressing room. The only sound was the sound of uh, chattering teeth, but it was oh. so cold that day. And there's a big Pinkerton guard, had to be six seven, and pencil thin. And he looks down at me, and I look up at him, and I say, "Ladies' day today." And he looks at my credentials, Red Smith. He says, "You're Red Smith." <laughs> <laughs> And I nodded as modestly as I would. And um, he said, well, go right in. So I get, you know, this is not a fancy setup. I go in this cinder block through this little cinder block um, entryway. And steel, uh, the Raiders are on my left uh, in their white uniforms with chattering teeth. Um, nobody had made a move to get undressed. They were too cold, too stunned, too depressed. And I look to my right, and there's John Madden in his shirt sleeves with his massive head and his massive hands. And he looks up and he goes, who the fuck is she? And the Pinkerton straightens himself up another two inches tall and says, <laughs> oh, don't worry about her, Mr. Madden. She's Red Smith. <laughs> 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 and Madden, Madden says, get her the fuck out of here. So I, I, I left and... You know, help lubricate Red through the rest of his column, and then we went to um, uh, the airport, which was then Pittsburgh Airport, was then a fairly small, you know, old timey affair. And you know, there was no checking of IDs or anything, so we just ran and got on the plane. And uh, you know, I think we came to some some hours later in the wrong city. So, the, if, you know, that was sort of what made me want to be a sports writer. <laughs> ah, yeah. And um, we're going to look at then the books that you've written, which, if I'm correct, they're all on baseball, uh, not football or other sports. Um, what about baseball um, kind of called you? Well, first of all, I have a great arm. And and I and I could pitch right now if I had to. Just ask my dog. Okay. Um, <laughs> nothing gets past her. Nothing gets through her wickets. But boy, can I chuck the ball. Um, and I I grew up on Long Island. You know, playing all the games that kids invent on the, in the street, um, uh, stick ball and whatever. Um, certainly the um, I, my my affection for the New York Yankees, which still repulses a lot of people. um, Including me. I know, was formed um, because of the proximity of my grandmother's apartment to the ballpark. 
Not that she ever went in it in all the 60 years she lived there. Um, but she did take me downtown um, to get my first baseball glove to Saks Fifth Avenue because she only wanted the best for me. Um, they had gloves at Saks? It was opening, it was opening week of the, of the season, um, and there was a model, a mannequin, in the, in the on Fifth Avenue in a Yankee jersey with a glove on her hand. And my grandmother walks in and says to the guy – salesman who looked like the Charmin guy, you know, um, yeah. is that Mr. Whipple? I don't remember who, who is anyway, the Charmin yeah, guy yeah. says, uh, I'll have that for my daughter and <laughs> I mean, for my granddaughter. Sorry. And he goes, Madame, that's not for sale. And she said, I'll have that for my granddaughter. <laughs> this, this was a standoff that was only going to end one way. So I went home <laughs> with my first baseball glove, which was, um, uh, a Sammy Esposito model. Now, I, 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 this is a dare. Either of you know who Sammy Esposito was? I don't. Uh, did uh, he play for the Senators? No, no, he played years. Can, He's, he was a scrub. He rode the pines. He was a good, um, you know, I middle remember the name? Field, yeah, yeah. middle infielder. And um, for no, the Yankees? No, for the Chicago yeah. White Sox. Yeah, that's right. Yes. So one of my years at the Post, one of my jobs for George always in the years before the Nationals, every opening day, we had to figure out something to write about baseball. And so he would send me out to write something about baseball. So one year I wrote uh, a true glove story and I found Sammy. I, I, uh-huh. I, I found he was assistant AD and baseball coach at North Carolina State. And the first thing he said to me after I told him that story was, do you still have it? <laughs> I went, no, my mother threw the glove out years ago. <laughs> he said that somebody had made off with his. In fact, the somebody who made off with his was a basketball player at um, NC State, Monty Tao. At short oh, no time. kidding. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Monty Tao. Was David, David Thompson, Thompson team. Yeah, it was David Thompson's buddy, and they went off to play some softball game. And I said, well, he must not have caught anything. <laughs> it was a horrible glove. And Sammy agreed that it was that um, he probably had the only two in creation. And um, he was desolate to hear that mine, mine too, was, was, had, gone, had gone out to pasture. Uh, that's wonderful. You know, what strikes me as you guys talk is that these are the stories about, um, you know, interweaving personalities and sports and so forth. And before today's episode, I was thinking about the topic mythology and sports. And I wanted to um, remind myself what we mean when we say mythology. Um, Some of it is just storytelling. um, But technically, it's a collection of myths, especially belonging to a particular religious or cultural tradition. Where do you see sports mythology? Is it about is sports religion or is it culture tradition? Like what is it? What does that term sports mythology mean to you, Jane and Dad? David, you go because I have to take something away from Betty. Who yeah, well, it, it has a lot of different meanings, Sarah. Um, part of it is uh, most sports is based on. Uh, the telling of lies, especially in retrospect. <laughs> so in that sense, everything is, you know, uh, 
the recollections, kind of like war stories in the sense that most recollections, of, especially of the athletes themselves, turn into mythology um, or myth because that's not the way it really happened. Um, mm-hmm. The great sports writers of the golden era, um, like Grantland Rice in particular and Damon Runyon and uh, many of those from that period from the 19. 19- 20s to the 1940s and 50s um, glorified sports and turned everything into myth. They often wrote um, sort of sappy poetry was a major part of sports writing in that era where they would, it would all become legend um, uh, in the recreation of the stories. The other part of it is in the uh, public imagination um, where uh you know, the, the uh, heroic model, which goes back throughout history, um, is transferred to sport where it used to be in other, you know, often, sadly, in war, the people were called heroes. Um, and, and in fact, probably were more. But in sports, that, that heroic model is something that the public imagination needs to find um, people or events that transcend the uh the quotidian lives that we all lead. And so sports is very important in that sense. Um, and so is the mythology. So it, I would say it cuts both ways. In some ways, it um, uh, sort of diminishes the reality um, and creates a, a false uh, idea. On the other hand, um, the human instinct is to look for something that rises above and sports does that as well. You know, the old columnist that you were talking about, Dave, um, Gallico in particular, yes. who is yep. um, a sports editor um, at the New York Daily News after being kicked out of um, reviewing movies. And then he moved over to sports to save his career and, you know, the flourish there. But when he reformed himself in the 30s and got out of it and looked back at, at the uh, mythologizing that they had done, he was embarrassed and astonished, but he always said, you know, these guys didn't go down to the locker room. They were rarely at field level. They were way up above in, in, in uh, large perches um, in ballparks and, and arenas. And that distance um, allowed for them to write these things as parables of good and evil, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. is how they were often described, particularly by Grantland Rice and Gallico, but pretty much everybody. Yes. Um, and it wasn't until um, talking to athletes, actually, I mean, nobody talked to athletes, or certainly they didn't quote them the way they spoke back in those days. Um, well, not in the newspapers. Not in the newspapers. That, yeah, right, exactly. But, but- but in short stories like Ring Lardner's wonderful short stories. Right. And, and they did talk to the players on the trains. I mean, the, you know, that's where they all traveled together for weeks at a time around the country on those trains. And many of Ring Lardner's stories are, are based on those train conversations. Um, but anyway, I interrupt. Yes. No, no, I always thought it was interesting and in that the paradox that the old time sports writers who wrote so little of what they knew Yes, these guys had complete access to them. Total not, access to them. Not yes. like riding around the country in tra- trains, but you know, Marshall Hunt, who was the first twenty four seven beat writer, again for the Daily News, 
assigned to cover everything Babe Ruth did. He went to whorehouses with him. You know, they, uh-huh. they arranged fishing trips in order to figure out ways to write about him in the off season. All, all manner of things. So they knew him really well. And then you contrast that with the circumstances that today's writers work against, which is that access is, you know, doled out in in thimblefuls, and you and yet you're expected to know them as well as you know, Gallico knew the guys who fought in Golden Gloves, which he created, by the way. Yeah, you have to go through all these gatekeepers who are the most obnoxious people in sports and politics. And, and not only that, and when you get to the guys, they're you know they've been. Um, had media education and how to politely say nothing. <laughs> um, one of the things I love about both of your books, uh, when you look at the titles, um, it's the subtitle that cues us, I think, as the reader about the bigger story um, and how these characters both represent and change a world. So your latest book, if I'm correct, Jane, is on Babe Ruth, the big fella, and then it's uh, Babe Ruth and the world he created. Um, the Mickey Mantle book, uh, The Last Boy um, and the End of America's Childhood. Those are such provocative sub, you know, um, subtitles like that. So with Babe Ruth, um, what's the world he created? And I think maybe can you talk a bit about um, uh, Christy Walsh and sort of that synergetic uh, relationship there? Sure. Um, Babe Ruth had the good fortune to come along at exactly the moment in time when um, the world was being reinvented from a technical point of view. Um, world War One is over. People have disposable income. I'm really condensing this. And <laughs> there's also depression thrown in there, but they, they, they have there's and there's these factories convert into making things stunningly. Factories could convert into making other things, into making <laughs> home goods at radios and dishwash, you know, not dishwashers, clothes washers, and all sorts of things. And he comes along at exactly this moment when the idea of marketing and public relations, you know, these guys who worked for the army and came home and again needed something to, you know, represent. Um, uh, Ivy Lee and and Edward Bernays became the top, you know, the, the the founders of Mad Men and and the founders of public relations, and they needed somebody to promote. And along comes Babe Ruth with un uh, unforeseen abilities, and and one of them was to do things that were beyond the imagination. He literally, you know, reinvented the game while it was being played. And so I disagree, with, by the way, with Joe Posnansky, who yesterday said that Willie Mays was the top number one of 100 players in history. Babe Ruth was because nobody else reinvented the game the way he did with um, a 54-ounce bat and bravado. You know, he's looking around, and this is when they're playing station-to-station baseball, and managers like John McGraw are pointing to left field and saying, you know, you just choke up and hit the ball that way a little bit, and I'll move these guys around the bases. And Babe Ruth takes one look at that his, in his anti-authoritarian soul. <laughs> says, the hell with that. I, I'll swing the bat one time and put an end to this thing. <laughs> one of my favorite statistics from the book, and it's courtesy of um, 
a guy from a friend of mine, Michael Halpert, is a uh, an economist at the University of Wisconsin, um, and he knows more about baseball and the and the economics of it. And I couldn't have written the book without him. So he points out to me at one point that more people in the United States would have known somebody who died in the t- Titanic than would have seen a major league home run in 1918 when there were 35 hit altogether. Wow. wow. So here comes Babe Ruth and he, and he just changes the architecture of the, day, the game. He changes everything. And so, and in his being and his corporeal self, the more beer he drank, the more bigger than life he became. And um, he was, he was the perfect guy um, to 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 extend the imagination of the Roaring Twenties, and of course he belonged in New York. Boston couldn't have contained him. I mean, he was happy there; he had his run of the place. But um, you know, this guy was made for New York, and and Harry Crazy was stupid enough to just tell him. That actually is part of the mythology, um, and I don't know uh, if you could do this in a con- con- um, concise way, but can you talk through that fateful situation with uh, the babe leaving Boston? Well, this is one of those things that Mike Halpert helped me with so much um, mm. because uh, Jacob Rupert, who was the owner of the Yankees and who acquired Babe Ruth and half, it seems like half the Red Sox, um, from Harry Frazee, um, donated all the records, all the financial records from his time as owner of the team to the Hall of Fame. And um, so everything from 1916, I think, through 1939 was sitting in a box in some storage room, unaccessioned and unopened. And Mike Halpert found it in the summer of 2000. And um, he's a really smart guy and a really good economist. And he realized he had the entire numerical story of how the Yankees became the evil empire. And what's more, of, of the details of what, you know, they find Babe Ruth for, you know, being late or being drunk or having, you know, 17 women in his room or whatever. But um, he he found the nitty gritty of how much um, crazy actually was paid. So it was a very complicated deal. Frazy was not a poor man, but he was cash poor. He'd had some, he was a a producer on Broadway and he had some flops and uh, thanks to the Spanish flu in 1918 and, and the war, it wasn't a big attendance at theater and he needed cash fast. And so Jacob Rupert agreed to pay $100,000, not 125000 as was reported by the New York Times, and has gone into history as the number, but 100000 And he also agreed to lend him money, uh, $300,000, um, and the collateral on that was the deed to Fenway Park, which <laughs> Rupert would own, but... Uh-huh. There was the interest on what um, on what Frazy borrowed was higher than the interest on what Rupert had to pay him in four four 
uh, payments of $25,000. In short, after six years, um, Harry Frazee had, by, had essentially paid the Yankees to take Babe Ruth off his hands. <laughs> That's how bad a deal it was. And when did the, uh, how did the curse of the Bambino, um, how did that emerge as a sort of a, I mean, even I know that phrase and it's been a hundred years or so. By the way, Jane, Sarah is a Yankee fan too. So you've got a I'm wearing, yeah. I'm wearing a t-shirt that I got in Cooperstown last summer uh, where I did not sit out in the sun to see Mariano give his speech. <laughs> um, it says, I guess, I get, well, this is upside down. I guess there wasn't no curse. Boston just sucked for 86 years. <laughs> um, yeah, it's my favorite T-shirt. I was going to wear my Yankee sweatshirt too, but it's been a lot. Um, and now that I'm doing all the housekeeping, <laughs> I didn't get around to cleaning it. Um, what was the question? The curse. <laughs> oh, actually, the curse is a modern formulation. Um the earliest uh, use of the phrase that I could find was uh, George Vesey um, in 1986 ah. after the ball went through Bill Buckner's legs. Um, yeah. And he wrote about, you know, the omens and the ghosts and, the you know, uh, the curses of the Red Sox. And then Dan Shaughnessy is a great writer for the Boston Globe, um, an old buddy from when he was still at the Baltimore Sun. Um wrote a book um, using that phrase, The Curse of the Bambino, um, which his agent and editor had employed and, and had learned from her grandfather over many summers of Boston tor- torture. Um, and the idea is, you know, and it all goes back to the stupid piano that supposedly ever since he threw the piano in the lake in Sudbury, Massachusetts, the, the Red Sox were cursed. Well, I found the guys who threw the the in the pond so I know exactly who threw it when and it wasn't Babe Ruth <laughs> that's for sure <laughs> but that when you say you found the guys they were dead of course no 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 I found this guy named Charlie Barry and he and his brother Stephen lived on that pond and uh-huh. there was a house that that's where right. Babe Ruth would entertain friends um, and Mrs. Babe Ruth the first one and they would take the piano and have hoot nannies and whatever. And sometimes they would huh. take the piano down on the frozen ice and play uh, and have bonfires down there. But uh, the, the, the old saw is that he got drunk one time and some sports writer told him he didn't look as strong as you, you know, he wasn't as strong as everybody yeah. said. And so allegedly in, uh, you know, uh, he heaved the thing onto the pond and, you know, that was the end of um, him in Boston. But um, these boys, Steve and Charlie Barry, um, in the 60s, found the piano standing on a little inlet uh, of, of the pond beneath the house where, they, uh, where Babe Ruth used to party. And it was, it was intact enough that they could actually play a few chords. <laughs> and um, being youngsters, they you know, made a pact never to tell anybody that they had found it. Um, and then, of course, one of them bragged, I know where Baby's piano is, and they came back, and it had, as they put it, disassembled itself. 
in the intervening years, um, I think it was four years till they went back there, it had just come unglued. And then they built a, a fort hangout um, where, you know, they would go and read dirty magazines and drink beer they stole from um, their parents. Uh, and it finally <laughs> got to be, and, and by the way, I might add, certain portions of the now desiccated uh, upright piano had been had become the location of a pissoir, which the town historian said he thought Babe Ruth would have loved. But um, anyway, so they got so grotty and disgusting, they decided they better take the thing apart, the whole fort apart, and burn it. Well, they tried to burn the piano, which was by that point so waterlogged and disgusting that there was no choice but to heave it into the lake. And that's what they did. And there you go, Sarah. That's myth and reality right there. That's right. (laughs) That's quite something. Um, The other, I thought, artifact, uh, you start that book with, um, is it Cal Cal Ripken Jr. having the bowling ball? Am I remembering that correctly? You're remembering, Um, um, yes, in the preface, um, I described the opening of the new Babe Ruth exhibit that was a um, hundred years after he played his first major league game. So it was June of 1914 and, uh, and then June of 2014 um, when they opened this exhibit. And one of the last um, exhibits is uh, his bowling ball, which he used um, profusely uh, after, you know, he was passed out of the game. There was, they, they couldn't find a single use for him um, after he retired in 1935. And so he bowled a lot, usually alone. And so here's this gigantic, you know, beautiful kind of blue and black paisley ball. And Cal, who I covered as a rookie for the, uh, um, <laughs> comes over, he grabs my, my elbow and says, you got to see this. So he goes and he points and he says, I really like to get my fingers in Babe's ball. <laughs> and I said, you know, only Cal could say that, something like that, so earnestly and not understand how it might sound. So I said, well, you know, Cal, I, I think I can arrange that because I knew that the curator, my buddy Tom Schieber, who's wonderful at the, and who had arranged this exhibit, had another of Babe, Babe's other ball was down in the um, bottom of the of the Hall of Fame, and that. It would, but what Cal was saying that was so interesting was that he wanted to feel the spread of his hands. Uh-huh. The, the bigger, the farther away you get from one of these guys, and the bigger they are, um, metaphorically, mytho- mythologically, the harder it is to get a grip on what started it all. And so here's this great athlete, Cal Ripken, you know, wanting to understand what it was that made Babe Ruth able to do the Ruthian things that we now refer to as Ruthian. And the way he wanted to do that was to feel how big his hand was. Because after mm-hmm. all, how many ways are there? You know, if you can find a pair of gloves, maybe. If you can, uh, there's a, a couple of hand prints, things like that. But I understood that this was a great athlete trying to get purchase on the greatness that was so Babe Ruth. So I sent a bowling uh, ball expert from Oneonta to Cooperstown, where he was allowed to measure Babe's ball. And what was, <laughs> what was extraordinary about it 
was not so much um, the width, which was probably very large for Babe's time, yeah, but yeah. you know, ten inches maybe uh, across. Um, uh, it, and it wasn't even the the length of the fingers; it was the thickness of them. Yeah, the this, wide holes. The yeah. holes were like more than an inch wide at the knuckles. Okay. No, so try to try to a feature. That's like a yeah. walnut, an unshelled walnut. You know, so you want to know what made Babe Ruth be able to swing a fifty-four ounce bat mm-hmm. in anger and with control? That explains it, and that's mm-hmm. the hardest part of getting beyond the myth with these guys is getting mm-hmm. to something specific, measured, you know, mm-hmm. measurable, um, you know, the, the, the knowing detail that makes you be able to visualize and feel it as opposed to just repeat ad nauseum. Yeah, he was Ruthian. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dad, did you find some things of Lombardi um, or Clemente that, that had that kind of um, transcending connection? Well, Clemente also uh, wielded a, a heavy bat, um, like Ruth, actually. Um, and I never got, the, I mean, I did get the measurements of his hands, but they weren't extraordinary. Um, he His um, skill was, I mean, the, the most notable skill for Clemente was his arm. Um, the most beautiful throws from right field ever. Um, closely uh, followed by the great Al Kaline, who died just the other day, and um, a few others. Um, Carl Ferrillo, uh, the Yankee killer. Um, but um, what I discovered about Clemente's arm was that it came from his mother, <laughs> which I loved. Um, his mother had the best arm in the family by far. <laughs> um, so there you go. I mean, and, and often I think Jane would acknowledge this too. Um, a lot of the uh, athletic genes come from the mother. Um, yeah. You know, there, there are a lot of great uh, uh, athletes whose sons can't match them. Um, uh, you know, Mickey Mantle's kids for, you know, so many. Yeah. Uh, but if the mother is an athlete too, it makes a big difference. Actually, that's great because I wanted to ask Shane about writing about Mickey Mantle and what this um, the the end of America's childhood. Um, in a sense, you have Babe Ruth creating a world, and then here's the end. So, what what are those forces? You know, I didn't I didn't write this down anywhere, but um, looking back at the three baseball biographies I've written, um, they're really kind of a triptych. Um, mm-hmm. Andy Koufax is the guy who eschewed celebrity, having um, a sense of the way the modern celebrity machine can eat you alive and not wanting to be. Mantle was a guy who was destroyed by celebrity um, at the height of, um, you know, the golden age of baseball in New York when we were, were three teams and, you know, and for each of the three teams there were, a million people who wanted to buy each of them a drink. Um, and uh, and then Ruth was the guy who created um, modern celebrity with the help of his agent, the first sports agent, Christy Walsh. Um, you know, Mantle was, was really hard because he was my guy. You know, the, the formulation linguistically is in New York was, you know, I'm a Willie guy or I'm a Mickey guy. 
or you know, somebody would say, who's your guy? And they say, well, Mickey's my guy. Well, I was a Mickey guy. and I Or Duke. Don't leave out Duke. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, my dad was a Willie guy and I was a Mickey guy. And yeah. my dad would come home, at, you know, from work and I'd say, hey, dad, look what Mickey did. You know, this is when you got results from the afternoon paper. Um, and my dad would, you know, go to the Giants um, uh, box score and say, yeah, look at what, 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 what Willie did. So, you know, we were constantly having this, this back and forth. Um, I identified with Mantle. I was conceived on the day he hit his first major league home run against the Chicago White Sox in Chicago. Um, and uh, <laughs> you needed to know that, didn't you? <laughs> um, and uh, well, you certainly needed to know it, obviously. <laughs> I, uh, how would I have known? I mean, I, you know, my mother told me, and, and you know, I, anyway. um, uh, I identified with his uh, frailty. I mean, that's the thing about these guys is the bigger they are, you know, both I think physically and and mythically, the more fragile they tend to be. Especially football players, I think that's that's wonderful, Jane. Because I identified with Clemente because he was considered a hypochondriac, which I am too. And it was great to find a great player who was in that same realm. I, I had forgotten that. Yes, of course. Did he have asthma also? <laughs> um, he well, he could, could he could pretend he had anything, <laughs> or, or or get it into his head. Yeah, right. Yeah. But he was artistic. He was, you know, he was so sensitive. That's why it was. Somebody had a thing on Twitter yesterday about, you know, who was the athlete, you know, who um, you'd like to have seen if they hadn't had whatever injury or whatever. Well, the answer is Mantle. I mean, for me anyway. I mean, you know, Mantle uh, destroyed his knee in um, right center field at Yankee Stadium in game two of the 1951 World Series, which was Joe DiMaggio's last. He, you know, Casey Stengel said to Mantle, who had barely played right field at that point, he, was, he came up as a shortstop, you know, go for anything. The day goes heel is hurting him. Well, you know, proud and um, vain as Joe DiMaggio was, um, he wasn't going to back off any fly ball. And here comes Willie Mays. I mean, it's a, it's a, triangulation that's almost operatic there's Willie Mays at bat and he was scared to death you forget you forget that they were rookies the same time he was scared to death he hit what what ball players used to call anyway a duck fart so you know a a tepid little you know uh, Texas leaguer um, that was hit between Mantle and Wright and DiMaggio and center DiMaggio didn't call for the ball because he was accustomed to um uh, not having to do that, you know, he, he, you know, if you're a center fielder and you can get to it, it's your ball. But of course, he could have called for it, knowing that Mantle didn't know anything about playing right field. So here comes Mantle, you know, at at full gallop, which was quite astonishing at that time. And at the last minute, he sees. As, this is how he told it to me. Uh, well, you don't want to run into Joe fucking DiMaggio at center field at Yankee Stadium. So he tried to put on the brakes, and in doing so, his spike caught in a metal drain that was embedded in the sod. Um, the drain, the the the, um, uh, the uh, 
you know, guy who takes care of the field. I've just had a groundskeeper. Thank you, David. The groundskeeper had forgotten to put the top over the steel grate. And, um, and Mickey said, um, that, you know, it felt like his knee, his leg went through the middle of his knee or the knee went through the middle of his leg. People said that he passed out and there were, um, there were moments, um, uh, described in the in the daily coverage that make it clear he might well have, and he said, "I said, well, how much did it hurt?" And he said, "How much did it hurt? I shat myself. That's how much mm. it hurt." Mm. And he was never from that moment on. I mean, you know, how often is it that the defining moment of an athlete's career is at the very, very beginning? From mm. then on, he was never going to be what he could have been. And he played three years without anybody realizing, um, not that they could have done anything about it, um, that he had, you know, that he had wrecked the cartilage as well as the ACL or the MCL of his knee. And uh, he used to do parlor tricks showing his kids <clears throat> how he could pull his knee apart. Um, and that's why they wrapped him as heavily as they did, and, you know, so tight that it, often his leg would bleed. Um, mm. and, uh, you know, he was, he, and he was a gamer. You know, people said to me, well, what is, what does Sandy Koufax and Mickey Mantle have in common? How can you write about both of them? What, when they seem as opposite, you know, as possible, dark and light and New York versus, you know, Oklahoma, uh, Hasty, they played hurt, both those guys. And they never complained ever. And can you kind of pull back a bit too to talk about, um, I mean, in a way that's almost like the end of his, um, uh, you know, the, the, the unharmed or uninjured uh, athlete is an end of something, but what was the end of America's childhood that you, that you were um, putting this? Oh, in context okay. Um, well, there's a famous um, instance um, at the Copacabana in May, 1957 when, um, uh, the not the, when the uh, gossip columnist for the New York Post wandered into the Copa, making his rounds on you know society rounds, and reported on a brawl that took place between several important members of the Yankees: Mantle, um, Hank Bauer, um, who was a tough old bird and marine, mm-hmm. um, and Yogi and Whitey. Um, and, and a bowling team from Upper Manhattan who got into a fracas. Um, and uh, it was covered because it didn't come out of the sports department. If it come, if, if sports writers had been there, they probably wouldn't have written it because they were accustomed to never writing anything that was controversial because they were heroes. And that was, you know, that was off limits. You didn't write about private lives. You didn't write about what happened after the game. Um, but because it was, you know, a, a, a gossip columnist, that was his job. And so uh, the Yankees were outed as uh, being, um, well, it was Billy Martin's birthday. So, of course, he was blamed for it and immediately got traded. Um, but, they were, you know, the whole image of them as these nice, clean-cut guys went down the tube. And um, David, you know about the chipmunks, right? Yep. Yeah, okay. You want to form the chipmunks? 
I'm sorry. Do you want to explain the chipmunk? No, you 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 go ahead. It's, okay. Well, I, there was it's a name that was given to a new generation of of sports writers. Sports writers. It was named for um, oh god, Phil Peppy's teeth actually, um, and <laughs> late Phil Peppy's teeth. Um, and they were guys who were anti-authoritarian and who didn't feel they needed to treat these dudes with, you know, the respect of keeping everything private all the time. And so within a short amount of time, you had people, you know, Stan Isaacs from Newsday asking Ralph Terry in the 61 World Series, 61 World Series, um, um, we just had a new baby. And, and Stan says bottle or breast. And that was considered to be, you know, like a revolutionary moment. How dare you ask that uh-huh, uh-huh. in public, you know? Um, so, and then, you know, you want to follow it through six years later, five years later, you've got Marvin Miller organizing the players finally and belatedly into a union. Um, and, that the whole idea of what was okay to report changed. I mean, partly it was about the sixties um, and, and mm-hmm. uh, what was, what was going on in the world. Um, but, and, and Koufax, by the way, and in, in concert with Don Drysdale staged what turns out to have been a very significant moment in the uh, labor movement of the, of the uh, baseball players, because he and uh, Drysdale, uh, held out together at the beginning of the 66 season. That's right. And Sandy always said, you know, it was a, it was a union. It was a very small union, but it was a union. Uh, Drysdale crumbled. Uh, Koufax's arm and his elbow were so bad already that he knew 66 was going to be his last season. If he didn't get what he wanted, he would have just picked up and walked away. But that wasn't the, the case with, um, with Drysdale. And, and that thing spooked ownership for so long that you know it was something they were referring to during the collusion debate in night in the in the early and mid 80s when they they conspired against uh, and banded together against all free agents so it was a huge movement you know getting back to that notion of innocence um the public was complicit in this and, 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 you know, there, there was never any time of innocence. And, you know, public who knew the ballplayers knew that they were ne'er-do-wells from the very beginning, uh, many of them. You know, going back to the late 1890s and the, and the 1910s, all the way through all of that period where sports writers were glorifying the players. Um, the public that saw these people day-to-day, which they would do in that era – knew who they were and knew, and knew all of their foibles. Um, the, you know, all the way up through uh, Jane's Yankees and, and uh, my Green Bay Packers, you know, they were a bunch of, of roustabouts um, who, were, who were turned into these mythological figures. You know, there was no bigger playboy in the world or, or drinker than Paul Horning, who was the golden boy of the Green Bay that. Packers. <laughs> I mean, he was he was the Mickey Mantle of football, right, Jane? I mean, oh, yeah. in many ways, although he survived and still alive um, somehow. Um, but so, and the, all the people in Green Bay knew who these guys were and would tell stories about them. They just never got in the press. So it, it was um, a change almost in in cultural um, 
impressions, but not the reality of it. Mickey called it all that Jack Armstrong shit. Yes, that's a great phrase. <laughs> Good for Mickey. He wasn't as dumb as he looked. Yeah. Um, well, it's an interesting um, kind of paradox that to some extent celebrity um, – do you think there's like this a sense of a of a bargain? Well, if you're benefiting from being famous, then we get to write about you. I mean, you have to take the good with the bad in terms of what we write because um, part of your success is your celebrity. You talk a bit about what celebrity means, especially in the Babe Ruth book about becoming a celebrity. Um, but Dad or Jane, like, what do you think is fair for for athletes in terms of writing about? them as um in their private lives well the you know it's i would say that to one degree to a certain extent the only thing that really matters with athletes is how they play on the field um you know when when people put all of these other uh attributes to them i mean your favorite player can be a total schmuck Uh, wait a minute i'm gonna push back there what? what about domestic violence or what about DWI? Oh, no, no. I mean, I'm saying, no, Sarah, I'm not, I'm not making that argument. Um, of course, all of that is important. I'm, I was talking about when they give positive attributes to athletes that they don't deserve. That's what I was saying. Um, yes, I mean, I think that um, it's not just um, the trade-off of being a celebrity, but it's the reality of, of any uh, public figure um, that uh, – you know when they that they should be reported like any other public figure, and and athletes um, are not exempt from that. Although they were for generations. Mm-hmm. I mean, the instinct to build people up and then tear them down is yep. as old as mythology. That's not a new story. You know, the "got too big for your britches" angle yep. is is uh, you know that was around. Plato's time, wasn't it? That's an exact quote, I think. From exactly. Plato, right? <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the expectation of athletes of today of what they're due and what they owe has changed radically. I mean, there was a time when you really could just sit down and talk to a guy. You know, you can't do that anymore. Um, Not without, you know, layers and layers and layers of protection, you know, PR guys and handlers and uh, flax and, you know, sitting in on everything. Which, Jane, if I can represent, the dirty little secret is that any athlete who is accessible is immediately beloved by all sports writers, right? Right. The same as politicians, but they don't seem to get that. Right. And, and, you know, look at Boughton. Boughton was a great example of that. Um, and, um, and usually it's the scrubs. It's the guys who don't get attention most of the time and that, that are more willing to, to make themselves available because um, they're expendable. And um, they're, they're also usually pretty good observers because they're sitting on the bench a lot. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't know if I could be a sports writer today. I really don't, you know, I mean, I could actually still talk to people back then mm-hmm. and, um, it's, it's not the same game now. Do you think so, David? 
No, I agree. Um, to a certain extent, politics is like that too, um, where there's so many protective layers between the, the uh, reporters and the uh, politicians that it's harder mm-hmm. to penetrate. Um, there are still ways to do it, but and then the um, demand is for authenticity. Yep. Yeah, and, exactly. and so that's the that's the problem. You know, the athlete, the subject, whatever the candidate has is you know. How do you project, how do you be authentic in a totally inauthentic um, world and setup? I remember going, um, when I was in the style section of the Post, going to interview Jane Fonda at the Madison Hotel. This is when she was <laughs> first doing her, you know, um, shape up, feel the burn. Um, uh, aerobics. Aerobics. And it, it there's a level of dishonesty in, in, you know, stories like that because you're supposed to pretend you really know these people. You don't know them. You know, you know them for the 10 minutes you're allotted between the next five reporters who are coming in. And that's all you can really say about them. And, and, and yet what editor wants you to admit, well, this is what she was on this particular day in this particular moment. Um, it's, so it, there's a there's a inauthenticity about the process in which you're supposed to somehow find, you know, uh, always authenticity. authentic. Yep. And I always, I always said if I could find one authentic thing, one thing that I believed, one detail, yep. you know, that's what I would build a story around. And that's what makes it believable. Absolutely. That's what we're and always looking for. It's ironic in some ways because in terms of mythology, it's almost like the the um, celebrity athletes who are alive right now are almost part of a myth that is more full of um, facades than than what you uncover in these um, these athletes who have passed away or who are dead because you can get to the truth, the real you know the truth of it. Um, well, that's something I've dealt with in my biographies, the difference between writing about, for instance, Obama and Clinton, who were alive and presidents when I was writing them, and Clemente and Lombardi, who were long dead. Um, for the ones that are dead, it's you have to penetrate all the mythology that's been encrusted um, over the years to get to the truth. But it is in some ways more accessible than for people who are alive. And there's nothing less reliable often than than um, interviews with the subject himself or herself who has created all of this mythology around their own lives. Yeah, never trust an athlete. <laughs> <laughs> Jane, what do you think about the coverage of female athletes? I know that's a general question, but um, certainly women in sports, it's... it's um, we're in a new era um, in some ways, and, and yet some of the same issues uh, have persisted. Um, the ones Billie Jean well, King were fighting for and now the soccer, the women's soccer players um, in terms of pay and recognition. Uh, what are your thoughts on where we are? Well, I mean, my first job was for Women's Sports Magazine, which was spelt, by the way, as one word, lowercase w, uppercase s, which was then owned by Billie Jean and her husband, um, Larry, oh. um, and Billie Jean was between um, knee surgeries, and she would come into the office and hit imaginary backhands against the wall, and I would just like, you know, wow, mm-hmm. <laughs> look at that form. 
Um, you know, it's it, it certainly the coverage of it is, it, it's come a long way in the sense that it started as nothing. But, yep. you know, female athletes are still um, struggle to get equity in terms of um, money. Uh, you know, the, the, soccer, the U.S. female soccer team is, is the prime example of that. And um, to get space and coverage. Um, so, but it has improved you know, in the sense that not everything is about, you know, how horrible it is that women have muscles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when right. I started out, there were people who were still having that argument about um, Nautilus and weight training, what that was going to do to a female. Well, it was unladylike. That's why, um, you know, when the Tennessee State Tiger Bells were the great track stars, um, there were only... You know, it was well well before Title IX, but anything having to do with track and field was considered unladylike, so they couldn't do it. Well, I mean, I, I mean this is a personal story, but a great, you know, um, example of it. Billie Jean King, um, who I actually played tennis with once in my bare feet um, at her apartment <laughs> in um, uh, Lincoln Towers, um, uh-huh. had never been interviewed by Red Smith the greatest sports columnist there was. And she was really pissed that <laughs> she had never met him and that he had never seen fit to write about her. Because, mm-hmm. you know, as far as Red was concerned, he was an old guy and, you know, as the four sports and he, and he, and he, four major sports, and he pretty much hated round ball and hockey. They were just games that went back and forth as far as he was concerned, you know, give him the Westminster dog show anytime, uh, rather than that stuff. Um, <laughs> And tennis, not exactly something on his on his agenda. So I invited them to dinner in my apartment in uh, Manhattan before I moved down to start at the Post. And Billie Jean knocks at the door. Um, Red was there already, and he was on very, very good behavior because the previous time that he had come for dinner, he passed out dead drunk in his plate and had to sleep over. So... Um, <laughs> This is true. Seriously. True. So Billie Jean comes and um, she's wearing this gorgeous Ralph Lauren pink cable knit sweater, cashmere, and a long uh, burgundy Ralph Lauren um, skirt and handmade, you know, boots with a high over her knee with orthotics built in and, you know, diamonds by the yard. Well, we're talking about, I don't know, 600 yards of diamonds by the yard draped around her neck. And she holds out her, her hand meekly, very meekly to Red Smith and says, hello, Mr. Smith, it's an honor to meet you. You know, and well, hello, Billie Jean, it's good to meet you too. Well, Red without any vodka was very, very quiet and shy. <laughs> Billie Jean was cowed. So there wasn't a whole lot of conversation. At the oh, point. gosh. <laughs> uh, I think he did go ahead to uh, write about her eventually. Um, so uh, I, I accomplished something that way. Um, but, you know, she felt she had to gussy herself up for mm-hmm. the old coot. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was, it was just, you know, <laughs> it was a great scene. I don't remember what I made, however. <laughs> uh, 
Jane, I know you've covered uh, the Olympics and uh, sports long enough to see some, um, maybe the strike, but also, you know, um, different different situations. And here we are, this baseball season, which is not really happening. And I was talking to dad before you joined us about a story I read yesterday. So today, for listeners who are hearing this, um, today is Wednesday, April 15th. Um, and the story I read in the Times yesterday was about um, an effort to try to piece together some semblance of a baseball season um, using the spring training camps, um, you know, basically the Cactus League and the Grapefruit League and having no fans. Uh, would this be possible? And the quote at the very end of the story was something like, we can't give up. And it just struck me in the sense of like, who's there are. That? Um, I think it was uh, La Rosa, I think. Um, La Rosa? Yeah. 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 Uh, Sounds like it. Yeah. Well, I don't think there's going to be a baseball season of any. I don't either. And I don't think there should be. And I don't Mm -hmm. think there should be. Um, I I mean, I was talking uh, with um, Mike Rizzo, the uh, Nats general manager. I mean, they, you know, say, let me know, let me know um, if you hear something. And um, I don't think they, it, it's doable. I mean, first of all, I adopted two children from Arizona, and each time I got there, it was 124 degrees in August at 11 yeah. o'clock at night. Um, I don't think you can do that to people unless they play games at 9 a.m. or 9 p.m. Mm-hmm. And Florida is a swamp. That's why they have, you know, their, you know, domed stadiums there, but they only got three of them, right? Um, so, um, I and and I I just don't see how it can be done safely. I don't see how it could be done safely, and I don't see how it could be done productively. I think that the fan in the stands is a part of baseball, as it is of football and basketball, and. And it would be a different game without without that sort of uh, support. And you know, I just it, it, and plus baseball of all the sports is the one that sort of soaks in the nostalgia of the of the past. Um, I've been you know falling asleep every night listening. There's a website that has all of the old uh, radio broadcasts. So one night I'm asleep. It can't have all of them. Well, it has most of them. I fell asleep one night listening to a 1962 uh, game between the Giants and the Cardinals. It was Marischal against Gibson. Uh, Last night I was listening to a game that I was at, um, which was the 1964 Father's Day Jim Bunning perfect game at Shea Stadium. I was trying to see if I could hear my voice in the stands. (laughs) So anyway, I mean, you know – I saw that the the uh, governor of Florida said that we can't exist on this old stuff anymore. So his, you know, they've proposed to open up a worldwide whatever it is that wrestling uh, fiasco, which is just a total. Well, that's, joke. A, that's a Republican payoff from Linda McMahon. Exactly. For, yeah, seventeen right. million dollars to the Trump campaign. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, I don't see how they, you know. Uh, to get to write them to, to 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 have a season where fans are exempted is to send a message that you guys don't matter, and that you know, and and so much about of, of the way baseball is run 
now says the same thing. We're going to start, you know, the most important games in the middle of um, November. And we're going to start so late that no night where the kids can't listen. listen. And then they wonder why there's no appeal to children, you know. Um, So, you know, baseball's got a real problem um, in terms of uh, having lost touch with the fact that they're they're supposed to be entertainment. And uh, they're just not... I think this would be such a horrible message. Now, I, other people have said to me the opposite, which is I miss it so much I'd be thrilled to watch it on TV and I don't care if I can go. And maybe they can maybe they can figure that out. But um, just from a health point of view, you know, I don't see how you can have fans in the stand. And, and if you have 800 or whatever number of major leaguers uh, spitting, you're going to get major league baseball players to stop spitting? Really? <laughs> I mean, we uh, saw how fast it spread in, in the NBA yeah. um, with the sweat. So, right, yeah. right. I, I, you know, or separated from their families for whatever number of months, mm-hmm. um, you know, or quarantine. I, well, I read one where they said they were, they would have a team hotel and quarantine and not let anybody in the hotel other than, you know, team management and the players and they, they would just go straight from the team hotel to whatever Cactus League facility they had been designated to use. And um, that would be how they would do it. But uh, I don't know. I don't know what the baseball union would have to say about that. And these are two people who love baseball, Jane and myself, who are saying this. Yeah, I, re- I do miss it. I miss so, David, me do me a favor. Go to that site and tell me whether they have Sandy Koufax's perfect game from September 9th, 1965. Because I was told, you know, that so few games were kept because the tapes were so big and bulky that they didn't uh-huh. have room to preserve them all. Oh, wow. I was shocked at how many I could listen to. But well, I will I check that out. I don't believe they're every one. They yeah, no, I shouldn't have said everyone, but uh, hundreds of them. Well, those were probably games of the week or or something, yeah. um, something like that where it was, yeah. Uh, Jane, what are you working on now? Oh, never ask a question. <laughs> I'm sorry. I should have warned Sarah. Uh, never, never, never. Um, Jeez. <laughs> I don't know, Sarah. Ask your dad what I should do. David, what should I do? I like your, uh, you, you sort of hinted at it in an earlier answer. What are um, Talking to uh, Mike Rizzo. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I went to him in 2012 uh, before I agreed to do the um, Babe Ruth book. Uh, to talk about what it was like and how you went about building a franchise in the post-Moneyball era when everybody has access to all the same data. And, of course, there's just more of it than there used to be. Um, And one answer, of course, is that you... um, uh, It's the Houston Astros' answer is that you cheat. You cheat. You cheat. You cheat. You cheat. cheat. (laughs) That's all you do is you cheat. Um, so, um, you know, Rizzo is, 
I think I have to go back to look at my research. I think he's one of three um, major current major league man, uh, general managers who came up through the scouting. I mean, they used to mm-hmm. all be former players, former scouts, former you know coaches, stuff like that. Um, and now most of them have Ivy League you know, degrees. Um, uh, there's a whole lot of Harvard in, in major league baseball these days. Um, and too know, much, too much. And it's all, you know, and it's all about numbers. Remember, you got to have heart. Ooh, you got to have heart. I mean, Rizzo told me that the reason he knew, um, that Para, you know, um, the shark guy, uh, baby shark guy was, what that team needed is because he's known him since he was 16 years old. You know, how did, how do you know that uh, a fastball, there's something wrong, you know, how people are hitting a fastball um, and they must know something. Well, you have to have watched, you know, a million fastballs of the same kind at the, you know, uh, thrown to the exact same spot that nobody could hit to know that there's something wrong when somebody can suddenly hit one. I mean, there is something to be said for your eyes. I, I can't find it, though. Maybe one of you <laughs> can help me. I One of my first stories um, was for Sport Magazine about a scout named Blackie O'Rourke, um, <laughs> James Frank Blackie O'Rourke, who played for Ty Cobb in 1925. I think he... He started in the majors, I think, in 1904. And he was still bird-dogging for the Yankees when I met him. I think it was 78 or something. Amazing. And he hadn't wound the clock in his house since the day his wife died, so it was still on the same time as when his wife died. Um, And I think we went out to Seton Hall to watch a game, and there were all these old guys, you know, in white socks, brought their beach chairs to sit behind the backstop. And um, by the end of the game, their socks were all brown. (laughs) Spitting, chewing and spitting. (laughs) And I loved that guy. His big, his big signing and his entire career was that he found Johnny Cox who had like what one great season for the Yankees. And he claimed to have found Al Downing, but wasn't allowed to sign him because he used, um, racial language that let's say was dated <laughs> to say the least. So, um, uh, I love scouts. And of course, Rizzo was a scout. His father was a scout. Um, I, I don't know whether this book will work out, but I think that, um, John Thorne, who's a major league baseball historian and a really good pal of mine. Um, I agree with him when, you know, baseball's at a crossroads. You know, is mm-hmm. it going to learn how to be entertaining it again and and tailor a game toward the interest of fans, not, um, you know, um, stats guys? Uh, it's, it's, it's gotten out of hand. I'm with you, Jane. We talked in an earlier podcast about my problems with Moneyball, so yeah. <laughs> we're there. And, you know... Uh, Jane, as we wrap up, one thing my dad and I have been doing this um, second season of the podcast is just giving a shout out to an independent bookstore, um, just because we know they're uh, they're 
uh, they could be easily for, forgotten, and we hope they're not, and that people order uh, any book um, from an independent bookstore. Is there one in either your neighborhood and the places that you live or when you are on the road that you like to go to? Oh, well, of course, politics and prose, though. They've expanded so much that I can't claim that they're just my neighborhood anymore. But yeah, <laughs> politics and prose um, on Connecticut Avenue. Um, I remember when they were small and across the street, you know, um, now they're big enterprise. But um, I also adore what Mitch Kaplan has done at, at Books and Books in Miami. Oh, great. That's a good one. Yeah. Jane, um, what was the date of that game that he pitched the no-hitter? September 9th, 1965. You're right. It's not here. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And you know how I know? Because Vin Scully told me, that, you know, again, about how they couldn't tape every game because the tapes were just too long. Yeah. They have, the, they have the World Series games and they have a game. Anything that was televised, they would have uh-huh. Okay. Yep. I see. Um, right. So, um, Lombardi, uh, sorry, Lombardi. Uh, Vin Scully told me that anytime Sandy or another Dodger pitcher uh, was throwing a no-hitter, or in this case a perfect game, uh, he would call down to the truck and ask them to turn on the tape for the ninth inning um, uh-huh. and, and then give the copy of it to you know Sandy. And this was his fourth no-hitter and first perfect game. Um, and so that's why that ninth inning call exists. I was lucky enough to be able to piece together that game um, from an old reel-to-reel tape recording that was um, recorded for Dave Smith, the guy who created Retro Sheet. He went out, and huh. he was a big uh-huh. fan, and he was, you know, college senior, I think, and he, should I go out with my girl or should I stay home and listen to the Sandy game? And so he he's told his father to turn on the tape recording when the, the tape recorder. Amazing. Came you found it, that. Yeah. But his father forgot. So it only starts, I think, in the third inning. Um, <sighs> but I also found among the um, stuff that, uh, that Major League Baseball sent me when I asked for all their raw footage on Sandy, I found um, – silent footage clearly film um that was taken of sandy that night um by one of the dodger trainers because he felt that his delivery and his mechanics were off and so i don't know why i thought it was that night i just did and i took it to jeff torborg who was the catcher of that game he called every pitch so i had the first two innings of, of Koufax, um, and then Dave had three through three through eight, and then Scully did nine. That's how I was able to piece together that. Since we recorded this in April, Major League Baseball has floated the hope of returning, maybe in July, without fans, maybe in Arizona or warm weather some warm weather sites. We'll see. Jane and I are skeptics. Meantime, uh, my son and I have adopted a new team, the Kawoom Heroes of the KBO, the Korean Baseball Organization, which opened its season uh, without fans this week. 
Uh, and after a rain delay and a break during the middle of the game because a building caught on fire behind center field, our heroes won their opener 11-2. to You've just listened to an episode of the David Marinus Ink in Our Blood podcast. We hope you'll subscribe to the Ink in Our Blood podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or whichever podcast service you prefer. If you loved it, we'd love it if you left a rating or review. Ink in Our Blood is produced by Metamorphosis.agency with creative direction by Monica Ryan and strategy and technical production by Jeremy Ryan. Music is by the legendary Ben Sidron. I'm your host, Sarah Marinus Vanderschaff. Thank you for listening. I made my way to the back nine. They call me the Iron Man. Watching out for the sand traps. Formulating my plan. Out on the back nine.